Good morning, church. Happy Father's Day. Um, just as a quick reminder, if you'll notice, we actually we have our offering boxes placed right immediately outside the doors, outside of our sanctuary. Um, so, uh, so, so feel free to, to notice those on your way out. And if you are at home with, worshiping with us today, then uh, please remember we still have online, uh, online options for you as well. This morning, I, I wanted to take a little bit of time to explore a phrase that's always kind of, it's always kind of piqued my interest. The expression, absence makes the heart grow fonder. I'm sure most of you are familiar with it, most of you have heard it. And kind of, kind of as I thought about it, I was like, you know, uh, there's a certain level of truth to that, right? My wife always likes me a lot more after I've been gone for a little while. I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but she always does seem to. She forgets the negative things that I do and all of the the foibles and all the issues that I fall into. And for some reason, she only remembers the positive things. But there's also there's also an element in which I feel like absence can be harmful to relationship. There was a recent study that came out in 2013 out of the Journal of Communication. And this study actually found that there is a certain degree of truth. In, uh, in the expression, and the absence actually does do something to fuel our hearts and to fuel our affections for one another. Um, and it cites a number of reasons for it. Going over reasons like, well, kind of, kind of what I already mentioned, one reason is that as you're distant, it's easy to forget some of those issues that creep in. It's, it's easy to kind of glamorize what the relationship is like. Another element is that you just don't, um, when you actually do have opportunity to interact, when you actually do have opportunity to communicate with one another, people tend to be far more intentional when they're at a distance um, for those phone calls or for those video conferences or whatever. So instead of talking about the mundane things of life, instead the conversations revolve around those of greater depth. And so in some sense, there's a little bit more intentionality with absence. And yet at the same time, at the same time, because there's distance, because there's distance, there's also a negative side to that, right? Because people only see what we present, right? If, if, if my wife is, is at a long distance from me and I'm talking to her, I'm only presenting the positive things. Very rarely am I going to intentionally bring up all the negative things that I did all the day, all the issues that happened, all the, all the things that I did poorly at, all the annoying things that I did. I'm not going to emphasize those things. So at the same time, there's a bit of a superficiality. So, so there's a tension there. Um, researchers have found that Though absence can indeed make the heart grow fonder, at the same time, it is certainly no substitute for actual presence, right? There's a certain depth and there's a certain richness to actually being in the presence of the person that we love or the people that we care about. And and I've heard that from many of you, even during this season, right? During this COVID-19 season where, where we've been separated, where we haven't been able to enjoy physical presence with one another. I've heard about the, uh, the desire to be able to see loved ones during this season. I, I, I've heard about the sin issues that have crept into your life, the new, the, the new and unique struggles that have come in during this season. Even, even, even looking at last week, as we again gathered for worship together in physical presence, I've heard from so many of you throughout the course of the week about how rich this time was for you last week and how enjoyable that was because there's something special about being together, right? So that, 
so that as we sing, like we were just doing a minute ago, there's a richness about singing in the same room together, singing praises to our King, right? As we dig into God's word together, there's a certain depth and there's a certain richness about being able to be in God's word together, about being able to pray together, about being able to see each other. I mean, just a little bit ago, as I was preparing to come into the sanctuary or to to, to the gym, I I had to use the restroom and my good friend Tyson Anderson charged me $10 to go to the bathroom, right? There's a certain richness about being together where we can take advantage of one another. Um, It's a good thing. We were made We were made for physical presence. We were made to be together. And just as much as we were all made to be able to enjoy each other's physical presence, even more so, even more so, God's presence. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at God's presence as we explore Genesis 39, as we explore this next stage in Joseph's life. We're going to see the importance of presence and the power that it has. God's presence empowers powers even in pain. God's presence empowers even in pain. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity that we have to be together, Father, to be present with one another. And Father, even more so, I thank you that you are here with us this morning. Father, that you, that you are working in our congregation, that your spirit is present and active, working in our hearts, drawing us to yourself, showing us the beauty of your son. Father, please continue to work powerfully. Please bless this time. Please use it for your glory and for your honor. Please convict us with your word. Lord, please just cause um, shouts of joy, Father, and worship to spring forth from our hearts. God, you are good. We pray this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. This morning, we're continuing to look at the life of Joseph coming out of the book of Genesis, right? We'll be looking at Genesis 39. So far in his life, we've seen this kind of growing animosity that Joseph has experienced from his brothers, right? Many of you are familiar with the story. Um, Joseph has been shown a certain amount of priority and preference from his father. He's been the favored son. And consequently, it's caused jealousy to creep into his brother's hearts to get to this point where they have actually sold him off as a slave, right? They they sold him off. They shipped him off. They didn't want him in their life anymore. They thought life would be better without him. Now, God's given him dreams. God's given him dreams that something significant was going to come in the future. Strange dreams about him actually ruling over his entire family. But those, the realization of those realities are still a distant future for him. At this point in time, he has been thrown into a pit and then taken down to Egypt. And that's where we pick up the story today. Let's begin by reading Genesis 39 verses 1 through uh, the first half of 6. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer over his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed him, the Egyptian's house for for Joseph's sake. 
The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So things have gone poorly for Joseph. Things have gone horribly. Again, he enjoyed privilege. He enjoyed favor in the midst of his large family. But now he's been thrust into an entirely new situation, into an entirely new country. He's been enslaved. He's been subjugated. And now he's on the beckon of, of Potiphar. Potiphar being a, a higher up in, uh, in Pharaoh's people. Uh, someone with special rank called the captain of the guard. Joseph's brothers have sold him off. He's been separated from his father. He's in a strange land. And now he's been forced into slavery. It's easy to miss the gravity of what he's fallen into when we know where the story ends, right? It's easy to miss the hardship of the present. Now, when our passage does speak about slavery, it's not talking about, it's not talking in terms of, uh, of American slavery and the institution that was experienced here. Um, slavery for them is very different from the slavery that was experienced here. Here it was based on race and it was, uh, there was, it was much harsher and there was really little to no opportunity to ever escape slavery. That's not what it was like in the ancient world. Um, though it was still certainly bad and it was so, still certainly a horrible situation for him to be in. But despite his hardship and trials, our 17-year-old Joseph, right, 17 years old, he shows his moral fiber in the midst of this. We don't know how long he was actually in this position, probably a few years, but we do know that he showed himself to be both diligent and wise in his demeanor and as he carried himself. Potiphar takes notice of him, and he actually begins to promote him. First, he takes him from being an, out, from an, being an outside slavery, a slave, and moves him to an inside position, which is a step up, which is a step up. He's doing less menial labor now. He's doing more important tasks. He's inside, so it's a step up. From that, he actually moves him from being, from being an indoor laborer into a personal assistant. And finally, he promotes him to a household manager in charge of all of Potiphar's affairs. Now, remember who Potiphar was. Potiphar was a hugely significant figure in ancient Egypt. Potiphar was a man who was in charge of so much in Egypt. And this powerful man has just promoted a young Hebrew slave to be over everything that he has. So this is a significant promotion for him. Just Joseph must have known how to make an impression on Potiphar. So Joseph excels even as he continues to languish in this horrible position. But how does he do it? How does he continue to excel in the midst of this, in the midst of this hardship? How can he continue to move forward and to excel? Well, our answer is in verse 2. In verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And that results ultimately in success. It wasn't primarily his wisdom or his diligence, though I think those were certainly present. It was God's presence that erupts in Joseph's life that causes this. So much so that it was evident in verse 3, even to Potiphar, who was more than happy to take advantage of this blessing, right? He was more than happy to take advantage of the benefits of Joseph. And then in verse 5, Joseph becomes a funnel of blessing to all of Potiphar's house. Notice, notice in this, God's presence is with Joseph, but Joseph doesn't have a burning bush experience, 
right? He doesn't have some kind of sensational experience with God. As you look back at his predecessors, at the, uh, at the other patriarchs, as you look back at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you see men who actually got to converse with God. All of them conversed with God on multiple occasions. We don't see anything like that in Joseph's life. When uh, they, they were able to converse with him, not only that, but Jacob, his father, actually wrestled with God. We don't see something like that in the life of Joseph. Joseph did get a few dreams earlier on, a few enigmatic kind of strange dreams, but they weren't conversing with God. It wasn't the same. Rather, what we see in the life of Joseph is we see his suffering, right? We see his suffering. And yet still, even in the midst of that, God's presence is palpable to those who are around him. God's presence is evident. It's obvious that he's doing something in Joseph. That, that presence fueled Joseph in the midst of his sorrow. That fueled, as he was connected to the presence of God, he was fueled to serve. Um, Reminds me of a story back, uh, back in our first house. Back in our first house, we had this cat named Aspen. Um, great cat. Cat's gone now. No idea. But it was a great cat. Don't worry. The cat doesn't disappear in this story. Um, great cat. So, uh, so, 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 so one day, I think I was carrying the cat through the house and I went to enter into our living room and all of a sudden the cat started freaking out on me. The cat did not want to go into my living room. And uh, I'm totally clueless. The cat's been in the living room. I mean, the living room was at the center of our house. So for life me, I couldn't figure out why. Quickly put the cat down because she had claws and I didn't want to get torn to ribbons. So I put the cat down and then, and then began experimenting, right? Because you're curious. So I took the cat food, put it in the living room, wouldn't go anywhere near the cat food. Like tried coaxing the cat in, nothing. Eventually my wife got home. I showed her. She's also curious. Couldn't figure it out. Why in the world would the cat not go into our living room? Finally that night, it was, it was Christmas time. Finally that night, it was dark out, so I went to plug in the, the Christmas tree lights in our living room. Bent down under the tree, went to plug it in, only to realize the tree was plugged in. Huh. Tree was plugged in. Lights definitely weren't on. Began looking at the wiring and quickly realized something presumably a certain cat, had chewed through the wiring on the Christmas tree. Hence, the Christmas tree was not working. And hence, the cat was now terrified, not of the living room, mind you, but of the Christmas tree that had apparently electrocuted the cat. Again, that was not the end of our cat. The cat survived. Um, and the cat survived with a newfound healthy appreciation for not chewing on wire, wires. Um, after that, we always joked around our house about we wanted to wire everything in the house that the cat heard or the cat got near to electrocute, just, to, just, just a little electrocution to keep the cat away from out of trouble. See, the, the cat ended up getting hurt because the tree was plugged into a source of power, right? As the tree was connected to the outlet, as the tree was connected to that electricity, there was a certain amount of power running through it. It's the same way with being in God's presence. As we are connected to him, as we are connected to the source, as we are in his presence, we are empowered, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of suffering. In the midst of Joseph's pain, in the midst of his subjugation, he flourished because God's presence empowered him. Even on to this next stage, even on to this next setting of temptation, Picking up again in chapter 39, the, the second half of chapter 6. 
Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house uh, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought, brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So our story picks back up on an ominous note then. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It's interesting. It's in, the, the Old Testament only puts those two things together, only puts this expression together in one other place in the entirety of the Old Testament. And it's in reference to Joseph's mom. Joseph's mom, Rachel, was also beautiful in form and in appearance. So apparently this was a family thing that got passed down to him. And unfortunately for him, it seems that Joseph had one asset too many, right? This, this, of course, this, of course, gets the interest of Potiphar's wife. She takes notice of him. Our passage doesn't give us too many details about how this unfolds. What we do get is that Potiphar's wife comes to him with this demand to lie with her. It's short, it's terse, it's sudden. She doesn't miss mince words, right? There's no question about what she's after here, right? She beckons him, come, lie with me. And then and not, only, not only does she do it this one time, but we're told that she does this daily for some length of time. I mean, th- this could be a couple of years, ultimately, that this is actually going on for. This is going on for some length of time. And on top of that, remember, he's a slave, this isn't just any ordinary man. This is a slave who is seen as being on the, the, the property. He is the property of Potiphar to be used with as Potiphar deems fit, or his family for that matter, right? The, this wouldn't have been an unusual thing to have happened in the ancient world for a slave. Now, the thing that's shocking about this, rather, is Joseph's response if you had been reading through the entirety of the book of Genesis, then you know that the, uh, the, the figures who came before Joseph, his, his ancestors, were not always the most virtuous figures, right? We see them fall into sins time and time again, and we keep, we keep wondering, what's wrong with you? Why do you keep falling into these sins? Even just in the previous chapter with the story of Judah, we see again moral failings, especially around, especially around sex. And yet... In Joseph, we see something different, and this should be a little bit startling to us, right? Joseph rejects Potiphar's wife. 
Joseph responds by proclaiming that this would be a sin both against Potiphar himself, especially in light of everything that he's done for Joseph, but even more so against God. This would be a sin against him. And while for most of us, it's probably obvious, it's probably obvious that this is a sin against Potiphar, it might not quite be so obvious that it's a sin against God as well. But the same sentiment comes from David's mouth as well in Psalm 51, where David states, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, he's talking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, it's helpful to know the context that David is speaking in here. In the context, this is in the wake of his, uh, of his infidelity with Bathsheba, a married woman, right? He, he has an affair with Bathsheba um, while her husband is off at war. To cover up his tracks, David actually has her husband, Uriah, killed, right? Because he's so concerned about being caught in the midst of this. He has her killed. And it's only in the wake of all of this, of sin against so many people, that David pens these words against you and you only have I sinned. Not so much that he believes that truly it's only against God, but that God is the primary victim of his sin in this. His sin is first and foremost against God, against his holy God, against the one who has chosen him, against the one who owns him, against the one who has intentions for his life, against the one who created him. It's first and foremost against God that he sinned. But that's not often the way we view our sins. When, uh, we, we, when our children are younger, when our children were younger, we would have them, when we would have them go to apologize to someone for having sinned against them or done something wrong with them, we, we always, we've always attempted to be very diligent to make sure that first and foremost, our, our kids are confessing their sins to God. Because we want to, we want to reemphasize to them that it's against him, first and foremost, that they have sinned. So it usually looks something along the lines of me asking, well, at this point, Asher, because he's our youngest, uh, at this, this point, asking my four-year-old, saying, okay, now, now you have to pray to God to ask for forgiveness. He prays to God. And, I mean, it's really neat because we can have confidence from the Bible that God does indeed forgive. So I have very little, um, I have very little hesitation to tell him, oh, did, did you hear that? I, I, I think I think I heard God say that He forgave you, and that now He wants me to tickle you, and so so that that's usually the way that it ensues. Um, yes, sometimes I do play the the role of a prophet for my kids, uh, but I, I feel very confident. I feel very confident that, uh, that that's all accurate. We want our kids to confess our their sins to God because it's against God first and foremost. All of our sins are against God. Back to Joseph things quickly begin to escalate, beginning in verse 11, where Potiphar's wife attempts to actually take Joseph by force. He flees, and this, this isn't a metaphor. He literally runs, right? He takes off. So that Hebrew word there, that's the word that they use for actually like running away from battle, okay? Running away from a military conflict. He does so so quickly that he actually loses his garment in her fist as he goes. Joseph has... Joseph has some real difficulty keeping his clothes on. She screams and falsely reports to her, to her other slaves that Joseph has attempted to rape her. And then she tells her husband the same story. Now, Joseph's response, Joseph's response to this temptation is a good example for all of us. 
When initially confronted with temptation, what does he do? He remembers those people that he would be sinning against, and he also remembers God. And he remembers that ultimately this would be a sin against God first and foremost. But as temptation escalates, he provides us the example of running, of running, of fleeing. In fact, it's such good advice that Paul in the New Testament picks up on a similar note in 1 Corinthians when he writes, flee from sexual immorality, flee from it. Some commentators on 1 Corinthians believe that as Paul writes those words, the story of Joseph is actually in the background of his mind. But this isn't our typical reaction to sin and temptation. Rather, we typically try to convince ourselves that we're strong enough. I can handle this. It's not a big deal. I, I, I can keep it in check. I can keep it in control. And rather, we, we play with temptation. And then we try to convince ourselves that maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe it's, I mean, it's not really hurting anyone. It's, not really, it's not, certainly not really doing any damage to myself. And we try to convince ourselves that maybe sin isn't such a bad thing until eventually, until eventually we succumb to sin. And this isn't just sexual sins. This is sin in general. Flee. Flee from sin. Don't play games with it. Don't trick yourself. Just run. Just flee. Find ways to separate yourselves from temptation. Obstacles, hurdles that you can put in your path. Things to safeguard you. Joseph rightly saw the depths of his wickedness and he fled. He provides us an example. How many of us are right now, even right now, are playing with sin? Are playing with our temptations and not taking them seriously enough? How many of us are genuinely doing the hard work of safeguarding ourselves from the sin that is waiting to crouching at the door, waiting to pounce on you, waiting to devastate your life, even more so waiting to devastate your heart for the Lord? Take your sins seriously. Something that might be less obvious about Joseph's temptations, though, is that even in the midst of this, even in the midst of his temptation, God is still with him. Remember back to verse 3 that God caused everything that he did under Potiphar's employ to succeed. Everything that he did, including even this account. That applies here in the midst of Joseph's temptations. In the midst of his physical and spiritual trial, God's presence is empowering him. He wasn't alone, though it probably often felt like it. Which leads us into our third setting in this story, his incarceration. Picking up in uh, verses 19 through 23. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger. This is Potiphar. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. So here, Potiphar is understandably enraged. What's interesting to note is that Potiphar would have been totally justified in the ancient world at having Joseph executed. He certainly had the power to have Joseph executed. But for some reason, and the text doesn't tell us why, for some reason he doesn't. For some reason he puts him into prison instead. The claims of Potiphar's wife were more than, were more than enough to merit Joseph's death. 
But God preserves him. Joseph, again, hits rock bottom. He hits rock bottom. He had done everything right. And the consequences of his right actions are condemnation and incarceration. Joseph was 17 when he was sold into slavery. When he's eventually released from this prison cell, he'll be, thir- he'll be, sorry, he'll be 30 years old when he's finally released from this prison cell, right? So 13 years between Potiphar's household and in this prison. Jewish tradition teaches the, that he was actually in this prison cell for 12 of those 13 years. We don't know for sure, but they estimate around 12. I think it's safe to say that at least 10, at least, at least 10 years of this time, he's in this prison cell. Again, sometimes when we know the end of the story, we, let, we use the end of the story to ignore the actual, um, the actual things that are happening. We miss the hardships that Joseph actually went through. So it's easy to ignore his suffering, but we're talking about 10 years of confinement. I struggled with three months under a stay-at-home order. I can't fathom 10 years in this sort of situation. But even in the midst of this hardship, even in the midst of this, Joseph begins to work hard again just like he did in Potiphar's household. He experiences promotion, just like he did in Potiphar's household. And just like with Potiphar, the jailer trusts him with all manners to be, with all manners, right? With everything that needed to be handled, Joseph was trustworthy. He must have set himself apart again in diligence and faithfulness and wisdom. But also, just like before, it's evident that Joseph's promotion isn't ultimately because of Joseph. It's not ultimately because of him. It's ultimately because of God. God is at work again. Verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 23, the second half. The Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it successful. This is the result of God with Joseph. God's presence was so vital in Joseph's life that it affected everything else, right? This wasn't just some kind of a Sunday morning presence. This wasn't just a once a week sort of presence. This wasn't just a when I'm reading my Bible sort of presence. This is a presence that invaded everything. God wasn't sequestered to the margins of Joseph's week or his day. He was in every element of it. And it was evident to those who were around him that God was with him. So sometimes it's interesting. Sometimes we get confused about what God's presence and his blessing actually look like. We begin to believe that his blessing will result in some sort of ease or prosperity in our lives. In fact, there's a lot of teachers out there that preach that, that if you trust and if you good and if you're good, then things will go well for you, right? You'll have financial success. You'll have marital bliss. Your kids will like you. You'll have, you'll have money. You'll have good health. You'll have all of these things if you just trust God and if you just generally live a good life. And of course, and of course, that's attractive, right? Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want things to just go well for them? This is called the prosperity gospel. It's easy to see why it would be so appealing. The problem with it is that it certainly doesn't fit scripture. It doesn't fit scripture, nor does it fit, nor does it fit church history. As we look back over church history, we do not see that Christians have been, have been blessed with prosperity and healthy lives and healthy families for all of time. That's not what we see. 
right? We see a broad range in God's people. We see those who are more financially prosperous, those who are healthier, those with happier families, and we see those who are not. Ultimately, ultimately, it's not the lack of money or the la- or it's not the lack of money nor the excess of money that marks God's people. Rather, what marks God's people is how they carry on in plenty or in want. How do we handle ourselves in the midst of much or in the midst of little? Suffering does not indicate that God is with us. Or sometimes we think maybe that emotions, maybe, maybe it's emotions. Emotions indicate that God is with us or that we're experiencing God's blessing because I feel a certain way. If God is with us, then I should feel something, right? But this isn't supported by passages like this either. Emotions are not often an accurate thermometer for God's blessing or God's presence in our lives. Sometimes emotions really just reflect what we ate last night or maybe how little sleep we got. Emotions were not meant to indicate whether or not God was with us. William Cooper, his, uh, his name is spelled Cowper, but uh, it's pronounced Cooper. He was a famous hymn, um, hymn writer who lived in the 1700s. And he wrote a hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And in that hymn, he wrote, judge, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Frowning providence means even in the midst of hardship, that's the frowning, even in the midst of hardship, that God oversees because God is sovereign over all things. He's providentially controlling all things. Even in the midst of a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Even while Joseph is suffering in prison, in the midst of a frowning providence, there is a smiling face of God's presence in the background working. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. There is a sweet flower that's coming. We know in Joseph's life that it's going to actually come in the midst of his life, but God doesn't always promise that either. There is no guarantee that God will balance the scales during this lifetime. But we do know that he works all things according to his will for good and that his, prom- and that his presence accompanies us even in the darkest hours. God is with us. So despite the hardships and the trials that Joseph has faced in subjugation, temptation, and incarceration, he continues to walk faithfully. But ultimately, ultimately, this story isn't about temptation or slavery or imprisonment. It's not really about those things. This story is about God's presence and how it overwhelms everything else. The trials of this world cannot overcome the presence of God with Joseph. God's presence is too rich. It's too powerful. It devastates everything that stands before, like an avalanche coming down the side of a mountain. It cleans the side of the mountain and everything that tries to stand in its way. It clears the path. That's the presence of God. It displaces the troubles and the trials of this world. In Genesis 39, we see God's presence with Joseph, but what is that for us? What is that for us? How do we get God's presence? We see in scriptures that there are different degrees of God's presence. And Joseph ex- Joseph's experience pales. It pales in comparison with what we have been offered. 
the presence that God, that Joseph enjoys, is pales in comparison with what we've been offered. And we see it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. God has come down in a unique way that far exceeds anything that Joseph knew. The Son of God has come down, has come down. He has put on flesh. He has become one of us. He is God with us. And this, this God with us, he was cast down in subjugation. He was tempted as a sinner. He was incarcerated as a criminal. And yet he did not fail in any of those respects. He lived the perfect God with us life. He died the perfect God with us death. And then he rose again. And then he rose again because nothing could stand against him. So that he could offer us something that far exceeds anything the Old Testament saints ever, ever even began to imagine. A brand new God with us that far overwhelms anything they knew. And in fact, it even gets better still. It doesn't end there. Because the Bible foretells of a day when we will get to experience an even greater glory of God. An even greater presence of God. Revelation 21 verses 3 to 4 Behold, this is the end. This is the end of the story, right? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God's presence will be completed with his people. Death and pain will be displaced by the grandeur of his glory. Our fears, our doubts, our troubles will be ended and we will be with him. Absence might cause the heart to grow fonder, but it cannot replace being in the presence of our Lord. Absence Absence should cause us to long that much more to be with him now. As we wait, as we cry out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, so that we can see the end, so that we can see him in his glory, so that we can know him in a greater presence than we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you. You are not a God who is shy You are not a God who has held back from us. You are not a God who has hidden himself. But Lord, you have revealed yourself clearly in the person of your son. And that through him, we can enjoy your presence. We can enjoy your goodness. We can enjoy your faithfulness. Father, please work powerfully. Please draw us to yourself. Please work powerfully in our hearts, God. Father, we pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Just a reminder, as we depart this morning, the ushers will come through and release us by rows so that we can maintain social distancing. Thank you for, um, thank you for, all, for all of your part in that. Please rise for the benediction. This comes from Jude, verses 24 to 25. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, 
to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Go in the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.